Well, pack it up, Dad. Bitcoin ended, and we didn't even realize that this is so embarrassing because it happened more than 10 years ago. Oh, gosh. <laughs> How embarrassing. It's so bad. Do we have to refund the listeners for all the episodes they listen to? Or do they have to refund us? I think that's the way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, headline from Forbes, June 20th, 2011. So, that's the end of Bitcoin then. And uh, this writer, Tom Worstall, who's no longer contributor for Forbes, writes, or at least it looks like the end of Bitcoin, quote, the Bitcoin community faced another crisis on Sunday afternoon as the price of the currency on the most popular exchange, Mt. Gox, fell from $17 to just pennies in a matter of minutes. Trading was quickly suspended, and the visitors to the homepage were redirected to a statement blaming the crash on a compromised user account. Mt. Gox's Mark Carpley said that the exchange would be taken offline to give administrators time to roll back the suspected transactions. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of Bitcoin, but I think it's a pretty good indication of it. Did you have an account at that time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually was feeling pretty down at that time. I will not lie. It was looking bleak. And, you know, the whole idea of like more exchanges seemed impossible at the time or decentralized exchanges. The writer also says the recent theft of passwords and user accounts show us that Bitcoin isn't secure. They're not liquid and they're not a store of value as the price collapsed. They're not a great medium of exchange either. So who wants them? Sure, Bitcoin does offer some anonymity, but then wrong. Yeah, I know, which is so funny. Like, he, he get what he just so he's so wrong on everything. But then so does copper sheets or co-wire shells or butter or salt or gold or silver or even pieces of paper with dead presidents on them. I have a difficult those time are very seeing anonymous those dead president papers. I have a, he says and then this he ends it with a little bit of a knife. I have a difficult time seeing what the currency even has going for it. It's dead. It's the end. Ouch. I know. 2011, barely out of the crib. And Tim over there is killing it. <laughs> Wait, 2011 or 2014? I know, right? I, but it says the date on this article says 2011, June 20th, 2011. Wow. I know, guy was early, calling it dead early. Maybe that's why he's a former contributor, not a current contributor. I just hope that some of our episodes are as funny as this article 10 years later. Oh, like just botched predictions? Like I'm just completely, what were these guys even thinking? Now, have you been to, I'm, I'm going there right now, but there's like a Is Bitcoin Dead Yet website. Have you seen this? I have looked at it in the past, probably not in a while. Uh, and there's also, uh, there's also a Is Bitcoin Dead tracker that tracks the skepticism of Bitcoin over the years. It really, really actually... In you know, you wouldn't think this, Dad, but according to some of the trackers, some of the most skeptical Bitcoin articles were when Bitcoin was at $63,000. Really? Yeah. Now, the reason why that surprises me is historically, my experience is the press always comes out and trashes like crazy when the price is dropping. And you do see that in the charts. You see a you see a rash of articles come out as the price drops. If you looked at this chart, you would think it's a price chart. Uh, you would think it's a, a long term price chart of Bitcoin and it's FUD articles. That's <laughs> just gonna, But they, they ride the wave up and they ride the wave down. I wonder what drives that demand. Maybe as the Bitcoin price rises, people have kind of taken an ideological view against it. Want some confirmation bias or? I think it's just there's a way to get clicks when price go up and there's a way to get clicks when price go down. And they lean into those different approaches depending on what the market's doing. They got a strategy for bull markets and bear markets. And, you know, buy Bitcoin worldwide. I think that this is the website of two of the members, the like Colin and his brother, who had that podcast with um, Ruben Sompson for years, the Unhashed podcast, which kind of that was one of the Bitcoin gem podcasts. Very, you know, kind of some dudes hanging out. Also had um, Mario Gibney, who at least once came to the Seattle Bitcoin meetup because he was based in Vancouver. He's got to come again. Once isn't good enough. He's not into Bitcoin anymore. He's into AI safety. I know. 
Mario, if you're listening. Mario. Define AI safety in one sentence. No Terminators. If you can't explain it simply, then nobody understands it. That's fine. If you can't explain it like I'm a five-year-old, then nobody understands it. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on August 25th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here in person for the first time in a while with... Oh, hey, it's me. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's episode, we're going to discuss a conversation in the United States about raising the Federal Reserve inflation target to 3%, why this is interesting and silly on many levels. Lynn Alden has a new article about the hype in AI investing, and I think that there is an interesting parallel to conversations around Bitcoin technology, including this term hyper-Bitcoinization. In privacy, the Southern District of New York has charged two Tornado Cash founders with money laundering and sanctions violations. There's already been some reactions on the potential negative impacts to open source software by a case like this from Coin Center. And we'll get into that because we're really interested in the intersection of open source software and privacy and financial freedom. In altcoins, there was some just schadenfreude news about how Prime Trust, the crypto custodian that used to be the back end to several pretty famous Bitcoin companies, including Swan Bitcoin, just engaged in some absolutely goofy behavior, including buying Ethereum at the top of the bull market because they lost access to their Ethereum wallet and they had to get funds to redeem to customers. Also, they purchased Doquan's stable coin, US, USD, USDT. Yeah, USDT. You know, it's going to go big. People are still still selling and trading it right now. You might want to get in now, Dad. <laughs> it's like with uh, XRP. It's like a cockroach. It never dies. Yeah, and by the way, XRP has completely retraced all the gains since their uh, court news. That was Ripple Labs selling into the bull wave, okay? That's their business model. Then in Bitcoin education, we have a conversation on Twitter about chain size versus blockchain size and how that's actually like really important to understand and a new Bitcoin optech that is basically a list of software updates. And then we have a bunch of boosts and that's our show. Mm -hmm. So let's get into this discussion around the Federal Reserve potentially raising their inflation target to 3%. I can't believe this. It it started as one or two noted fiat economists talking about how perhaps the Federal Reserve has already achieved victory. And within a week, it snowballed into this entire discussion around how the new inflation target rate that the World Bank should be should be aiming for should no longer be 2%, Dad, but perhaps it should be 3% now. There's a lot here. On the one hand, this is a debate about increasing by 50% the inflation target rate of the Federal Reserve. And so if you think the Federal Reserve controls money and has a big impact on the economy, then this is a very exciting, interesting debate. Another perspective is this is a conversation about percentage points being given by people who have this view of money in the economy that it's like a mechanical process and they can just, you know, fiddle dials, tweak dials and control a complex system. And so this is just completely absurd. Not to mention you have folks like me over here that feel like any inflation is bad. I don't want 1% inflation. I don't want 0.5% inflation. I want 0% inflation. Maybe I'm wrong, but to me, 2% feels like stealing my life energy and my wealth. 3% 
I mean, you got you got to understand this compounds every year. It's just it gets it gets ugly after a while. To be clear, the inflation target that they are talking about is the U.S. CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And if your income is not increasing by at least two percent every year at a two percent inflation target, that means that if inflation follows the target, your wage is going to get cut in half every thirty six years. So I think an interesting conversation is where inflation targeting comes from. And I think that this grows out of the 1990s when the Greenspan Fed, the Federal Reserve led by Alan Greenspan, who's considered the the greatest central banker in in U.S. history. The Greenspan Fed is kind of interesting because that was a period at which inflation was persistently low. The Greenspan Fed, you know, basically had free reign to uh, change interest rates to whatever they decided. They never had a coherent like philosophy or policy of interest rate changes during that period. The you know after reading you know, Fed notes and commentary on this for a long time, the conclusion I have is you know Greenspan sort of changed the rate as they felt like it was necessary. They also presided over, uh, you know, of course, two uh, financial crises. There was sort of the 1994-95 slowdown, and then there was also the dot-com bubble burst. And from a Eurodollar perspective, this was a period in economic and monetary history where uh, things were just going right in a certain sense, because China was absorbing a lot of manufacturing from the rest of the world, which meant that manufacturing costs were falling. This meant that consumer goods costs were falling, so this put downward pressure on the CPI. The Eurodollar system was working well, as evidenced by the Eurodollar futures curves following the same pattern as the Fed funds rate and other US-based dollar curves. So this is sort of a period when no one really understood how the global economy worked and no one really cared because it just all worked out fine. And this is also a period during which the US Federal Reserve did not really have an interest in actual monetary aggregates. There was discussion about how M1 and M2 were not necessarily really useful measures of the amount of money in the world because the amount of money was pretty complicated. And so we're going to move over to inflation targeting because inflation targeting is sort of practical. You know, that's what we really care about. We don't want high inflation because then it creates political upset, but we don't want inflation to be too low because then it makes debt service complicated. And when debt service is hard, then all of our indebted corporations and governments have a hard time. And so inflation rate targeting, it's just this practical choice because there's no incentive to understand how the monetary system actually works because the answer to that is it doesn't actually need the central bank. The central bank's not an important part of that. So inflation rate targeting is just this sort of convenient kind of security theater type thing to do. It reminds me a lot about taking your shoes off at the airport. It's not making you any safer. It's not really helpful. But if you do it, you might feel reassured that there's a process in place. And so that's kind of my view of Mm. inflation uh, rate targeting. And since it's always just sort of been this way, nobody really says, why do we have to have 2% inflation? Why do we have to have 3% inflation? It just seems normal, I suppose. And, you know, the flip side is, is the average middle-class American is seeing the value of their house go up in the meantime, right? So their inflation generally rises the prices of assets and most middle-class Americans, their biggest investment is their house. So when they exist in this inflationary environment that's slowly eating away at their savings account and slowly making their wages worth less and less, they're kind of distracted by it all because the value of their house is going up. I think that's one of the silver linings that sort of average people can 
experience in environments where financial assets are increasing in price. But that's not always true because there are housing markets where you don't see financial gains and housing markets are very illiquid. And, uh, you know, I just, I think maybe your opinion and my opinion is that housing is really not necessarily the store of wealth going forward that it might've been over the past 30 years. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one real issue is a lack of insurance because with climate change, there's a lot more houses that are at risk of weather events than used to be, and no one has uh, significant insurance when that event actually happens. But the interesting thing about the Wall Street Journal article we have linked about this debate around increasing the inflation target is that the argument that is made for why this is a good thing is essentially anti-employee, anti-anyone with a wage, because the argument is that if you allow for higher inflation, it actually cushions the effect of recessions because it means that wages will effectively decrease over time and the cost of employing people will fall over time. And so why would employers lay people off if their labor costs are actually falling every year? Another way of saying that is that it's a policy that favors employers and businesses and capital holders over wage earners. And I think that's kind of the political or social aspect that we think is problematic because it kind of reveals that the majority of or one large consideration in U.S. and global monetary policy is how moneyed groups in society that wield political influence get to choose a global or national monetary policy that favors them and over time transfers value from workers to people who own these businesses. They're picking the policies. They're going to pick the policies that favor their bags. I don't need to belabor the point, but I just find it ironic that many of these people would consider themselves liberals or progressives, but they're picking anti-worker policies. I think it's a little messed up. I confirmed that today because I called my friend in New York because Paul Krugman was saying, hey, this seems like a good idea. And my friend confirmed, yes, talked to Paul Krugman recently, still think he's very clever. He's a, you know, he's sort of a darling over here. Okay. And yeah, this is sort of, this is an anti, uh, anti-working class uh, policy. Is it, am I, am I framing it wrong? Is it, there is the establishment perspective, which is a centrally managed system, be it climate, be it supply chain, be it monetary, be it health, it's centrally managed versus the populist position, which seems to be not nearly as definable, but whatever seems to be the best policy for the individual people. And it feels like it's not necessarily left or right, This what we're seeing with this monetary system, but establishment versus populist. I'm not sure that's how I would characterize it, because I think that a lot of supposed populist policies generally are not very good for the people or the mass of people who seem to be behind them. I think that when you have a status quo that it does not serve many people, frustration and resentment builds up and it explodes in this kind of expression of rebellion, anger, disdain. And then you have kind of political grifters who can kind of shape that energy into their own gain. So I don't have a problem with the term populism. At the same time, I think that it's very difficult to harness that energy constructively. The other thing I want to mention about this debate is why is the conversation being raised about this inflation target? And also, why is this article mostly about how, okay, let's raise the inflation target, but the Fed really can't lose that credibility? Well, the answer is because the Fed is never going to meet a 2% inflation target in the next decade. I mean, they might meet it one quarter or a couple months or something, but on the whole, inflation is going to be higher. And why do we say that with confidence? It's because the 
factors that drove inflation down over the past 40 years since the 1980s had very little to do with monetary policy. They generally had to do with globalization and trade and China providing a huge amount of cheap labor to the world. And then other parts of Southeast Asia also providing cheap labor that drove down consumer goods prices. And there were also some financial innovations in that period. But basically, the financial side of globalization kind of failed in 2008. That was really what the 2008 financial crisis was about. It wasn't so much about mortgage-backed securities being toxic assets. In fact, most of those mortgage-backed securities that everyone was saying were so toxic, they didn't lose money. They performed exactly as designed. The issue was that those assets were being used in an international monetary system. And so when liquidity dried up for rehypothecating mortgage-backed securities into other types of money assets, banks in Europe were insolvent. That, like That's actually what was happening. And that's a very complicated story. No one really can solve that problem without an entirely new architecting of the financial system, which no one wants to do because one, no one has authority to do that. And two, if it happens naturally, probably there's you know a lot of social upheaval. And so the monetary side to or the financial side to inflation began to break in 2008 and hasn't recovered and is clearly continuing to break. But then now the economic physical side of that, basically goods globalization, China is the workshop of the world, that's also changing. And it's not something anyone can just declare a policy and roll it back right. because right. sure, there are political reasons why the US and China are sort of disengaging a little. They're kind of fighting about a bunch of stuff. But the fact is, China pursued a one-child policy in the 80s and 90s, which meant that they had one generation with a lot of workers and then old people forever. They shot their own foot with that policy, which was in many ways motivated by well-meaning Westerners who sort of had this kind of tacitly racist view that a Western middle-class lifestyle would become too expensive if all the poor people also wanted one. So why don't we solve that by reducing the number of poor people? That's really the argument for the population bomb theory and the population control movement. And unfortunately, China somehow managed to internalize this. And now they have a population crisis. They have a lack of workers. And they also have a youth unemployment crisis simultaneously. And they have an elderly crisis because they don't have the facilities or the infrastructure to support an aging population. And so they're going to continue globalization and provide cheap labor to the world. They can't do that anymore. All of those problems I described to you, they need money to pay for that. They can't continue to keep wages super low. They just don't have the demographic right. runway for that. Also, we're just seeing a more iterative development of technology where starting with Greenspan and moving till really the 2020s, we were seeing processors and storage and network connectivity and screens and capabilities of GPUs just exponentially expand. And that technology force was an inflationary force in itself. And now that's kind of slowed. And now it's much more incremental. And all of these things have kind of landed around the same time. And dad, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Wall Street Journal and the Chicago Booth Review were both writing about this at the same time. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that the Fed's internal current projections for the inflation rate that they target is 3.3% is where they think they're going to land. So isn't that interesting? Their internal targets are currently, they think they're going to end up at 3.3. The Wall Street Journal, which is a street paper and the Chicago Booth Review also come out and say, well, 3% should be the target. And the Fed's only off by 0.3, mission accomplished. Well, and, and this is part of, we need to maintain the Fed's credibility because the Fed follows markets. You know, the Fed has to change their targets to match what they think the market is going to be in the future because they don't control the market. They don't control these numbers. And if you say, 
well, clearly they are because, you know, they're in charge or whatever, like people would notice. Well, explain the mechanism by which they control these, the inflation or interest rates. I mean, you, you can't articulate it. The argument for the Fed being able to sort of control interest rates is based on the assumption of maturity transformation in the banking system, that banks take short-term liabilities in the form of deposits, and then they lend them out long-term to you know businesses that are investing in you know capital investments and stuff and then the fed can control this process because if they you know if we have a financial system where banks are obliged to hold fund or have the option to hold funds in short term government bonds that yield certain interest rates by changing the interest rate at the short term by either raising it if you raise it then that means that borrowing lending long term becomes more costly so you invest deposits and other funds into short term treasuries and you you basically reduce capital investments and so there's less economic growth in, into the in the future that's what you know that's their model of maturity tr- transformation or they reduce the fed funds rate that means that you know banks don't have the option to invest short term to and they have to lend out long term and so that increases economic potential in the future by reducing inflation interest rates. So that's nonsense because that's not actually how banks engage in lending. First of all, banks don't have a fixed amount of money to lend out. They're constrained by legal requirements around their sort of capitalization and, you know, certain practical numbers around how much funds do you need to have around to prevent a bank run. But banks actually create the loaned funds when they generate loans. So it's not like they need to borrow funds from you in order to have funds to lend out. Like they actually, in a sense, you know, create financial assets because the loan that they create when they lend you money that they've created on their balance sheet is now an asset. And so, and then, and then they can sell off this loan to get actual real money. So basically there's not a coherent explanation of monetary policy that justifies even the most basic of federal reserve policies. And I hate to sound like a crank about this, but it's just mind boggling that we have millions of students studying economics in university. And I don't, I don't think I've ever heard a young person understand, you know, this process or, or how, you know, how, how it's supposed to work. You know, I understand Jeffrey Schneider losing his mind slowly on YouTube now. Let me me tell you. (laughs) Uh, I wonder if it isn't that old, same old problem we always talk about where, you know, you don't even notice the system when you're inside the system. And you didn't like for, I mean, for me, it just didn't, it didn't even realize how silly it all was until I had something like Bitcoin and I could compare one system to another. And maybe that, you know, cause it's, um, this, it's the universe that, you know, we don't really question the fact that we breathe air and then we drink water. But if somebody came to this world who didn't breathe air and drink water, they'd be like, God, you guys are hooked on this. You got, you, you guys realize how weird it is that if you don't drink water, you die. That's pathetic. You breathe air that I was just breathing. That's disgusting. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> you're sharing the same air right now. Gross. Nasty. I wonder if that's just it. It's like to us, when you're inside the system, so all these students, oh, dad, where, where I spiral here is I start to think it's a, it's a problem in every industry and we just notice it because we're paying attention to the financial, but it's a problem in the technology industries, I believe. I think this is a problem in the medical field, a big problem in the medical field. Like my personal soapbox is I've never gone to a doctor in my life that's talked to me about nutrition. I've never had a doctor talk to me about what's healthy to eat and what's not healthy. I mean, but like, what's the point? about having that conversation in the U.S. You know everyone's just going to eat garbage anyway. (laughs) Okay. I mean, but my point is, is like, they're very sort of tunnel vision in their training. And I think the same thing's happening to economists. It, uh, it's, it's, 
and you don't even think to question it, I suppose. Maybe the computers will just take care of it all for us and us as humans won't have to deal with these complex problems one day. But when you were talking about how developments in technology, computer processing power, storage capacity were slowing, I think that the hope is that developments in AI will represent a new technological revolution that will kind of step change, increase growth, and we'll have another 90s with high growth and yeah. know, that Goldilocks. God, so. I'm, I'm definitely in the skeptical camp. I would compare what chat GPT and AI is. And I know, I know some like Lynn are very, are very bullish on the long-term potentials, but I would compare what we have now to version 2.0 of predictive text on your keyboard. When you're typing out, I'm on my, and then the little keyboard suggests way, that's, that's what chat GPT is doing at scale. It is looking at the most probable words that come after the next words and it's putting them together based on sentiment analysis and it's producing results. And it also has an index of stack overflow oh, sure. yeah, articles. Yeah, yeah, that's useful. I'm not trying to diminish its usefulness, but I don't know if it is the disinflationary effect that the 90s brought with the internet and then the aughts brought with mobile. I just doubt it. I agree with you. And I think that Lynn Alden agrees too, because for ChatGPT to affect the physical world is clearly going to take at least a decade to sort of add AI to industrial robotic systems and maybe achieve this goal of having cheap robots that produce goods cheaply. Yeah. There are industrial robots, but they produce goods very expensively. Yeah. The reason to get an industrial robot, in my view, at least when I was looking at systems like this uh, seven years ago, is the capital structure of your company. Because if you can secure cheap funding to make an upfront investment that's debt financed in a robot, then you can remove operating expense in the form of employees. Of course. That's that's actually like a huge perk for, you know, say Tesla or something. Cheap money environment, that makes a lot of sense. But does that make sense going forward? It really, you know, at, at whatever the interest rate you're going to get on that loan today, I don't know. Yeah, maybe not now, but at a different time. And so Lynn Alden's August newsletter has some conversations about these AI trends. And I think I can summarize her view that basically we're in the middle of an AI hype bubble and investing in AI stocks or, you know, wherever you think the play is in AI, you know, you're probably going to get wrecked. It's very speculative. But long term, there likely will be efficiencies gained through the use of these technologies. I mean, I know in my own life, sometimes when I'm writing code, the chat GPT, you know, code samples sometimes work or have good ideas, but they're very tricky because they're always wrong. You know, there's always something wrong in there. It's not a thinking system. It's not thinking about, right. it doesn't have a model of how the code works. It just has many examples and it'll throw one at you. Is that similar to a junior developer? Sure, in some ways, except a junior developer can then iterate and find the bug. ChatGPT will not find the bug. I do acknowledge there will be efficiency gains because I have realized them, right? I use stable diffusion to generate images and um, there are things that in the past, just years ago, I had a full-time graphics guy do for me. And once I, once I went independent as a business, I could no longer afford, afford to hire a graphic artist, especially a full-time graphic artist. But with Stable Diffusion, I can generate unique images for every show that we produce live. And then for a show like Office Hours, I'm even generating individual chapter images using Stable Diffusion. And so for one episode, in that example, I'm generating like a dozen images that I would have had to pay somebody to create for me. And you never could have afforded to pay someone. So no. now listeners get more thumbnails which yeah. is cool it's nice right i mean there's there's little ways like that that it definitely makes me 
uh, feel like I have more capabilities. It's great at summarizing show documents. It's really good at summarizing news stories sometimes or YouTube videos as well if it has a transcription. So there's obvious benefits to it that will provide efficiencies. Um, and I think it, the, the real fundamental question of how far it goes always comes down to how far will the humans implement it? We've had so many technologies over the years that humans could have implemented to make life easier. We just recently talked on the show. Why isn't it today when you go to a doctor's office and you have to fill out forms, say it's the first time you've ever been there. Why isn't that on a tablet? Why isn't that on a web form before, like maybe on a little terminal there in their office? Instead, they still hand you a clipboard, even though we've had tablets for a decade. We've had websites for 30 years. They still hand you a clipboard. And then a nurse takes that when she isn't doing a hundred other things and she transcribes it into the computer and puts it into the computer. And sometimes your ass is waiting in the doctor's office while the nurse is taking what you wrote and put it into the notes. So that way the doctor can pull it up on his computer and get the information. And we've had tablets for 10 years or more. And we've never, we've never done that. And this is some places have, but nothing at scale. I mean, the argument that there is some sort of efficiency in the private U.S. Uh, health insurance industry is pretty shocking. Uh, right. wrong, I think. But my point is, is like we just don't seem to implement the tools to their fullest possibility. And I think it's going to be the same with AI. We'll have them to some degree, but long term big industry, they're just not going to do it. I just, I'm more skeptical than I think even Lynn is. Yeah, you, you need a very competitive environment to incentivize like, yes, you know, right. effective adoption of game changing technology or efficiency gaining technology. And I don't think I don't we don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis here. Perhaps if the efficient market hypothesis is true, then Bitcoin has already failed. You know? Mm, yeah, you wouldn't need Bitcoin, would you? So I think the parallel between Lynn saying, listen, AI, it's not nothing. It's not like there's nothing here. At the same time, should NVIDIA have a 70x price to earnings multiple because they make graphics cards that might be used in some AI applications? <laughs> no, that's probably not reasonable. That's probably a financial bubble. The connection to Bitcoin is, I think, for a lot of Bitcoiners, including early Bitcoiners, you got into Bitcoin because you were hyped about it, like people are hyped about AI right now, and thought that the world would be hyper-Bitcoinizing 10 years later. Now it's 10 years later, and it's not hyper-Bitcoinizing. I mean, Bitcoin adoption you know, doubles every year or something. I mean, it, it seems to increase based on some metrics tracked by entities like Glassnode. Yeah. But, you know, where's the revolution? And I think like Lynn's argument for AI, it's a much slower process. It's not super efficient. It happens in odd places. Yeah. The world of the future is going to be very similar to the world of today. Physically, it's not going to change a lot. Some of the digital systems will change. Some of the payment rails may change, but it's probably not going to be as shocking a change as we might have thought as we sort of grokked how revolutionary digital scarcity was and the ability to send money anywhere in the world in 10 minutes with you know very low fees and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which is not to be a Debbie Downer here. It's just that a slow transition is super useful too. Things are going to happen with the economy, money, and politics that we can't control, but we'll always be able to control the Bitcoin in our wallets with our own private keys. And this gives us a lot of optionality, which I think is super neat. And peace of mind. You don't need to worry that your savings or your stock market portfolio mm -hmm. is at risk when the institution custodying those assets goes out of business or something. So right. it's, it's nice just from a ability to self-custody perspective to have something 
that you can hold yourself. And, you know, all again, you can also mess that up. So maybe it's nice that there's also the option to have entities custody things for you that aren't Bitcoin. Yeah. I see a future where, you know, both things will exist and it'll probably be complementary in many ways. You know, Bitcoin is on a trajectory that is so exponentially faster than AI. It feels like AI is on this wild upswing right now. But um, just for fun, I went back and I watched an interview from 1992, 93, eh, somewhere around in that, that era, of the Age of Empires developers. Remember this Microsoft game, Age of Empires? It's a, it's a pretty good game. And it's like Age of Empires 2 or 3 they were working on. So that's the so 90s. And the entire thrust of the interview was about the revolutionary artificial intelligence that they had baked into the game. And the whole thing was about how artificial intelligence was going to be changing gaming because it's come along so far. And, you know, that was the 90s. And here we are. We have chat GPT now. However, with Bitcoin, I've been here for a very long time and I am blown away at how much awareness Bitcoin has. It's I mean, I, I, I pretty much have not met anybody recently hasn't at least heard of Bitcoin. They might not know what it is or how it works, but they've heard of Bitcoin. And four or five presidential candidates in the U.S. right now are making Bitcoin part of their platform. I'm skeptical any of them are going to become president, but I am taking in that moment right now. I am taking in that moment that politicians have calculated that the way to reach the maximum amount of people and to appeal to a large group is to be pro-Bitcoin. I cannot believe we are in presidential politics for the 2024 election cycle and Bitcoin is is at least even mentioned, right? Like the fact that it's even at that level of awareness is just absolutely staggering to me. I can't believe it. I actually thought it would take another decade. So I, I don't know. I, I, I am... There are things that don't seem like they have gone as as well or as fast as I was hoping, but then there's other things when it comes to like public awareness and whatnot that I'm shocked how far how far it's come. And it's kind of interesting how the narrative around Bitcoin may change in the popular discourse because I believe during that Mount Gox time, like in the pre-show article, Bitcoin was hackers and criminals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same people that had Bitcoin were the same people that used beepers and cell phones. Criminals. Criminals. And so now we're at a point where you know, maybe slightly fringe political candidates talk about Bitcoin, but it seems to be moving more towards the mainstream. Yeah, I can't deny the trend. The trend is, you know, yes, I think you nailed it. It starts with the with the fringe, but then in another cycle or so, it, it will be mainstream. The world's largest asset manager is very bullish on Bitcoin now. So that seems pretty mainstream to me. Yeah. Let's wait until Paul Krugman also endorses it, like that 3% inflation target. <laughs> I don't think that's ever going to happen, man. Never, ever in our lifetime. That stuff, I think, will never go away in our lifetime. If we're lucky, our kids' lifetime or our kids' grandkids' lifetime. But You mean Paul, Paul Krugman will go away? <laughs> well, eventually he will. But no, I just think his, his ilk. Now, we have some sort of bad privacy open source software news. We knew this was coming, but the Southern District of New York indictment of the Tornado Cash devs made me quite nervous about open source development, and Coin Center agreed as well. You've been following this conflict between open source development, free speech, privacy, corporate interests for 20 years now. Does this look like an important point in that 
story? Or is this sort of run of the mill, the feds are pushing hard against an open source project and there's some gray area there? This definitely feels like a new turn. And the implications are not great because if you really boil down the case, it sounds like if you provide any kind of infrastructure for people that are planning to break the law or use what you create to break the law, you could be held liable. An example of that could be we have a matrix server that's available to the public. Somebody could set up a private room on there. They could coordinate a scam, some sort of illegal activity. And if you're following the logic of the prosecutors in this case, they could come after me because I'm paying the Linode bill for that. And I don't, you know, or just if I create an open source project like, say, Simplex, and somebody uses that to plan a terrorist attack or North Korea uses that to plan a cyber attack, if I'm the one that is maintaining the Simplex GitHub repo, all of a sudden now I'm liable for what the North Korean people did using my software, potentially. And let's just step back and break that down at a very basic level, because you might say, well, of course you can't let terrorists use your software. That would be so bad. You are helping them commit terrorism. And then the response to that is, listen, if we can't, if we have to have a mechanism to identify every user and then ask for the permission of someone, let's say the U.S. government, to allow each user to use our software so we know we're safe, you know, so we know that it's not our responsibility that someone used the software for a bad purpose. Well, at that point, you know, this is 1984. I mean, you, we won't have the ability to develop software because the government, first of all, would have to authorize millions of transactions or, 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 you know, permissions, you know, every hour, let alone or minute, you know, and so they don't have the infrastructure to do that. And if they had to develop the infrastructure to do that, it would probably be some horrible like AI filter system that would break all the time. And then, you know, this system breaks and now you're not allowed to, you know, use Visa or the internet or, you know, buy food and you starve. I mean, that's, you know, obviously that maybe that sounds like a jump to uh, 11 you just stupid. No, you just but, jumped to China. I just saw yesterday about vending vending machines in china that if you have a social score lower than 300 the vending machines won't vend because you shouldn't snack i guess yeah um yeah there's that there's there's also just the whole like this essentially implies that everything needs kyc any anything that is a service like this or a messaging service anything that could be used to facilitate a crime must have kyc so that way when the local government comes knocking, you can provide the information. And part of what they're going after these guys for is that they didn't do any kind of know your customers. They didn't do any kind of KYC to prevent just anybody from using this. Right. And what actually happened was that there was a smart contract on Ethereum called Tornado Cash. And two individuals were involved were Roman Storm and Roman Semenov, who are being charged in today's indictment. And then there's another developer who's in Europe who's been released from jail finally, but he was uh, imprisoned pre-trial for almost a year or maybe more than a year. And they are being targeted because the Tornado Cash smart contract gave you the ability to send Ethereum into the smart contract and then you get like a Tornado Cash receipt and then you could withdraw Ethereum from the smart contract using that receipt. And this contract provided very excellent privacy because unlike Bitcoin, where each Bitcoin transaction produces a UTXO, which is like a little chunk of Bitcoin. Now, those chunks of Bitcoin are by design trackable because part of the way that Bitcoin enforces the 
finite digital nature of it is by tracking UTXOs and adding them up and making sure that there aren't more Bitcoin than there should be. But it means that to do Bitcoin privacy, you have to like do a coin join transaction, which, you know, combines all the UTXOs and then splits them up again. With Tornado Cash, every time someone transacted with a smart contract, all the Ethereum went into a single big pool and mixed together perfectly. So it was a very good privacy technology on Ethereum. The issue is that there was a Tornado Cash DAO. The DAO had a token. The token potentially incentivized people to interact with the Tornado Cash pool and add liquidity to it. The developers may have been receiving funds from the token. You know, and, and all of that seems very gray area. That seems like, okay, if the government's going after you because you seem to have kind of profited from, let's say, the North Korean Lazarus hacking group depositing hundreds of millions in there, and then you're receiving tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in Ethereum as a result of the fees. Yeah, okay. Now it seems like maybe you've got a financial stake in them committing crime and using your smart contract. But the issue is that in the court filing, they're saying the problem is that they were providing infrastructure. They paid for a GitHub repo. That is very problematic because they paid for web hosting. So if, like you said, you pay for web hosting for a matrix server that I could join a room and suggest a scam, like, are you now an accomplice? Have you supported that? I mean, this seems like it could really have a lot of wide ranging consequences. Also, it's a mess. The FBI, the IRS, and the Justice Department's National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, NCET, are all involved in going after these guys. They all want blood. And here's the other thing. is It kind of hits close to home, Dad. Uh, Roman Storm was arrested in Auburn, Washington. Oh, no. Yeah, in our backyard. It stinks. I'm just disappointed he never said, hey. I know. First of all, could have been on the pod. Right. We got a we got an open seat over there. And and second of all, it really feels crazy that I mean that means our local state or probably, you know, some sort of law enforcement division here was involved in going after this guy because he provided GitHub hosting to a project. Where is the line for providing material support? If we tell you about CoinJoin and then you CoinJoin and you know with funds you used to you got from some scam, did we support you? I mean, maybe this sounds apocryphal, but this seems like a very slippery slope. Yeah. Because, and and I understand it's a legal approach to just throw the kitchen sink, throw everything they did into a charge and then see what sticks. But there's a lot of stuff in this charge that if it sticks, there could be some very bad knockdown effects. I mean, if the indictment was more focused on you created a secondary token and you benefited from the token sales and those token sales both incentivized and benefited from illegal activity. Okay. You got a case. That seems, you know, I'd have trouble defending that. You could argue they made money off North Korean hackers. Okay. That's not good. But if I host an open GitHub repo and people write code that's potentially malicious and put it in there, I didn't deploy it. I didn't holding someone responsible for that seems very bad. Yeah. That's why it does feel like a new turn that isn't, isn't good. And these guys are facing 20 years in prison. And then an additional five years for operating in an unlicensed money transmitting business. So they're potentially facing 25 years in prison. Yeah, which is basically a life sentence. And the process of fighting the FBI, the IRS, and the Justice Department all at once is going to destroy them. Oh, yeah. I mean, financially, you're done. You can spend infinite money on that court case. Yeah, and they will. They literally will spend infinite money going after you. So (laughs) good luck, guys. Yeah, it's really rough. So I need to be cheered up after that. Is there is there anything 
I got a, I got a nice plate of Freudenschwader here for you. Oh gosh. A Freudenschwader. <laughs> you remember the whole prime trust, like catastrophe where we kind of heard some rumors that something was going down and then the Swan folks made like an emergency transition. So what was prime trust and, and what was their relationship with Swan? Because I think that's where most Bitcoiners yeah. heard about it. Yeah. Well, it turns out for a lot of Bitcoin companies, they're all kind of using a third party to buy and hodl the Bitcoin for them and manage it, right? So Prime Trust was a group. Turns out they're involved in a lot of things, which we'll get into, but sticking with Bitcoin for a second, Prime Trust would be the group that would go out and do the -the over-the-counter buys or somebody, they'd set up a private trade and they would do the cold, supposedly cold card custody and stuff like that. And they would be the custodian that then companies like Swan and many others would then be the front end for and provide like the user interface and the services and the tooling and the customer support. Not an unusual arrangement in the financial world, but a bit of an unusual arrangement, I think, in Bitcoiners' minds, but it turns out it was actually pretty common. And then there was some discussion in the community. I mean, we brought it up on the show that maybe Prime Trust is a bit of a central point of failure. Some of the early smoke was that Prime Trust corporate officers had made political donations on behalf of Sam Bankman-Fried, the CEO of Alameda, or not of of FTX. FTX, yeah. And then also remember that like the CEO bailed about a year ago or something like that. And started a competing Mm -hmm. business called like Fortress Trust or something. Yeah, yeah. Which does the exact same thing, I think. And now it turns out, thanks to a witness statement that was filed during some bankruptcy proceedings that have been going on, um, there's a whole bunch of financial mismanagement. Prime Trust lost $6 million of client funds and $2 million from its own treasury due to some doomed investments in Terra USD. And I don't know if they were buying Luna or buying the stablecoin. I would actually speculate that they were gambling with Luna. But the article talks about Terra USD. And uh, so they, of course, speculated with that, tried to make it big with Luna and Terra. That went bust. And then Prime Trust also, at around the same time, was after the collapse, was was dealing with excessive spending. They had expenditures of $11.1 million, but they were bringing in $2.7 million in revenue. And what were they spending all of this money on? I don't, I, I, I'm actually not clear. I don't know. Because this seems like the kind of operation that you could run in the AWS cloud. Yeah and have a couple remote admins. Because essentially, the real service they're providing these Bitcoin companies is they have some financial licenses to yes. do financial transactions. They can operate in the various states and whatnot. And then they have an API, basically a web server. And if you're authorized to use it, you have some secret token, you can interact with the web server and say, hey, buy Bitcoin for me and send it to this account or sell Bitcoin, send the dollar funds to this account. And so you can plug it into your client facing app. And then you have to do a lot less work building an app to, you know, you can focus on the clients. You don't have to deal with the immense security requirements of holding all of your customers Bitcoin. Right. And theoretically, a custodian like this would also be insured. Of course, Prime Trust was not insured. Right. I don't think they told people they were insured, but I mean, they definitely were not. Yeah. Of course, they were in the process of being acquired by BitGo and uh, BitGo bailed because they did an audit on Prime Trust financials and just said, we're not touching this. Yeah, that was a Hail Mary, please buy us out of our yeah. misery. Yeah. And then that didn't go through. So then they had to do this quick transition. I guess where I kind of get a little cranky is a lot of Bitcoin only companies were using Prime Trust and Prime Trust was YOLOing and aping into things like Luna. Right. And so if you held funds with a Bitcoin company that was using Prime Trust as a back end, 
you might discover, actually, you don't have the Bitcoin you thought. And after 12 years of court cases, you might be paid back in Luna. (laughs) Or a percentage of the Bitcoin you thought you had. It's really kind of gross. And I think a lot of times these companies, they want to just get these gains and they want to get that yield, that sweet, sweet yield. And so they end up experimenting outside of the Bitcoin space and then get wrecked. And there's also some real technical challenges that they're dealing with here. We've talked a lot about losing funds as relatively early Bitcoiners. And this is a company that I don't believe they lost Bitcoin funds, but they burn the keys to Ethereum. I mean, especially if you're custodying multiple cryptocurrencies, there are so many foot guns here. It is not hard to accidentally lose access to funds. And if you're managing $100 million of funds, you lose access to one wallet. You're like, oh, darn it, that was $6 million. That's very hard to do well. And and how do you learn? You learn by losing funds, you know? By so getting this, burned. This is very hard to do in a, in a corporate environment safely, in yeah. my view. Maybe we'll look back and think we're fortunate that we spent our time learning these hard lessons when the price was around 20000 and not when the price was around like 500000 or something. Gotcha. That's going to be a much harder lesson. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be people who YOLO in at five hundred k and then lose their funds. Yeah, yeah. But of course, the majority of people who lose their funds at five hundred k what's going to happen is they YOLO'd into Coinbase at five hundred k and then discovered they're never allowed to withdraw. I mean, yeah. that's the real loss. Or their in my account deal. got compromised, or Coinbase closed it and seized their funds. That's always a fun one. Right. <laughs> Chain analysis yeah. indicated something bad, and the Justice Department gets your Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, they won't be running Raspberry Pi nodes in that future. I think maybe by then, those Raspberry Pi nodes will have been slowly worked out. Or, or we'll come up with some great technology to incorporate them. But either way, the discussion has once again been ignited. Should we talk about historically why Raspberry Pis were this kind of revolution oh. in Bitcoin nodes? And sure, I I don't even know if I know the story. What's the story, Dad? Why why was the Raspberry Pi such a hit? Is it the price? I think it was the price because one issue with getting people to run servers at home is what on earth do you actually need a server for? And so before Bitcoin, probably the most common personal server was like a Plex server for playing media at home. Sure. Or a maybe a Nextcloud server for storing your documents if yeah. you didn't want to store it in Dropbox. Or a or file something. server or something. Yeah. But with Bitcoin, because there's this monetary aspect, running your own Bitcoin node, it does provide you with some security because it means that your wallet software doesn't need to go into the scary internet to get data about the Bitcoin network. So it means kind of less external connections. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of theoretical attacks where I convince you to make a Bitcoin transaction and I actually, I'm controlling the Bitcoin node that you're pulling data from so I can kind of trick you into making a transaction and believing the world is in a different state than it is. I have not actually heard of an attack like that ever having taken place because I think it's much easier to just kind of hack someone's computer and try and steal their private keys. But theoretically, running a Bitcoin node provides a lot of security and for ideological reasons because we want to decentralize the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin's supposed to be self-custodial, so why not self-host it? A lot of Bitcoiners wanted to run Bitcoin nodes at home, and Raspberry Pis 
came out how many years ago? Years now, but they're cheap, right? 45, 50 bucks, depending on which one you want to get. But I think it really made a difference when the Raspberry 3 and then 4 came out, and that's only been a few years. Yeah, and these are small, single-board computers that can run as a server in the background, low power. You can attach a bunch of storage to it via a USB connector. And this was a way to run a Bitcoin node for maybe $120 in hardware or less, potentially at certain points. And so there were a whole bunch of Bitcoin node distributions that were Raspberry Pi focused. There was the Ronin Dojo, which is a samurai wallet focused Bitcoin node stack with Bitcoin Core, and then some samurai tools to run a samurai wallet server and do coin join. There was, uh, was my node mm. Raspberry Pi yeah, focused. I think so. Yeah. And there's Rasblitz. That's another one. It's Raspberry Pi focused. Yep. And then Start9 is also Raspberry Pi focused. Umbrel was originally Initially, yeah. only for Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. So this was a common target for shipping a Bitcoin node stack of software, but it is currently potentially not going to work so well for Bitcoin nodes going forward. Right. Because it's not just a matter of disk space, is it? Right. And disk space is the blockchain data, which is, I think, currently, I want to say 450 gigabytes for just the blocks. But if you do additional indexing, it can be up to 600. The issue is RAM. And the reason you need RAM for the Bitcoin node is because the block data is important for creating the current state of the Bitcoin network. Your node needs to read all the blocks to know that the current state of the network is up to date. But this state, which is called the chain state, kind of needs to live in memory because when new transactions come in, they need to be read against the chain state to make sure that they're valid. And the current Bitcoin UTXO set, according to OpenNOMS, which honestly, I should have checked this on my node this morning, is 7.3 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. And I believe the current max memory of a Raspberry Pi is 8 gigabytes. Right. So we're at a point that Ethereum surpassed a while ago where small devices can no longer hold the entire UTXO state in memory. And as a result, their performance as Bitcoin nodes is going to fall a lot because they're going to have to store that in swap, which is on disk. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi has not been updated since COVID too. So it's a slow moving platform now, whereas there's others that are much more reasonable performance wise around the same price, like a a really nice used ThinkPad, you could get for a couple of hundred bucks. An Odroid, you can get for 140 bucks and you could put 16 gigs of RAM in that thing. It's got an x86 processor. So we're also kind of like the trend line of the UTXO set getting larger and the Raspberry Pi just not really staying competitive. Those two lines are beginning to meet and the community kind of needs to embrace new solutions. But I think we do need something low cost here. And I've been playing around with the Rock Pi, oh, yeah. which is kind of a, a similar architecture, also ARM64, you know, but it has 16 gigs of RAM. It's also a single board computer. But the problem with the Rock Pi is there's much less development on the platform. You're, you can either run Ubuntu on it or you can run kind of like a janky, unsupported um, Debian release called Armbian. For me, now I'm a Red Hat guy. I want something RPM-based, and that's not an option on that platform, unfortunately. Yeah, the, there's no beating the community supporter on that Raspberry Pi or ARM. It's just no no other device stacks up. I really, really want them to come out with the Pi 5. Yeah, that would be great. Mm-hmm. And more memory and better disk I.O. I think the Turing Pi uh, might be an option if you're very technical, because that's the carrier board that you can put four Raspberry Pi compute modules in. But that seems like it's more designed for, say, uh, some kind of clustered computing. 
If you could get your hands on four Pi compute modules, you could probably just get a desktop computer at that point, too, because they're very expensive. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Or definitely a used ThinkPad. Right. In terms of cost, the used ThinkPad is hard to beat. I'm actually using a used ThinkPad right now, though not running a note on it. And that's just, it's funny, but that's a, I have a used Dell uh, Precision Enterprise workstation. And what I like about it is that it has ECC RAM. I think that's great for a node. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Because ECC RAM means that you will not have RAM errors that can result in data loss. And the reason that consumer machines don't have ECC RAM is Intel yourself, according mm-hmm. to Linus Torvalds. Yeah, well, they like to have feature separation. But, you know, you can go on eBay and get yourself an old workstation with ECC RAM and Xeon processors for real cheap. It's a little more expensive on the power side, but it's got plenty of RAM. You know, it's going to go for quite a while. I actually tried to sell my old uh, Dell Precision T5200, maybe maybe 5600 workstation on Craigslist, but after, or home lab sales actually, and after a bunch of inquiries, no one bit. So I might have to drop the price to 50 bucks, but it comes with 256 gigabytes of DDR3 hey, ECC oh. RAM. Hey, you should put a link in the notes. Maybe a listener would pick it up. You never know. Hey, that's sweet. That's a good idea. 256 gigs of RAM. So wait, you're going to have no problem with but that. But now I'm profiting from the podcast, so I might be liable for all the criminal <laughs> activity it inspires. <laughs> yeah, I think if they, if they hack with that machine, you can get in trouble. That's a good point. Well, this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting. That's my podcast network. We've got a bunch of great shows over there. Self-hosted 104 just came out. And not only do we dig into the shenanigans going on with Namecheap, which if you haven't heard are ridiculous, but I give you an update on a $13 voice remote that I have set up with Home Assistant. It's all local. No going to the cloud for any voice control. Also, you might check out Linux Unplugged 524. We set up a NIC system that has something that's called impermanence. And then we gave root login to the live stream and let them break it multiple times and then recovered the box and went through how we set all that up. JupiterBroadcasting.com for all those and more. That really makes me want to get into Nix. It's fun. And there's a Nix Bitcoin conference coming up in Berlin. So maybe. Yeah, I wish I could be there. Maybe Brent can make it. I know if you can send a JB rep. I think if you like Ansible, you'll like Nix. It's I it's kind Ansible. of there. there's some redundancy there. But I believe there's also a little bit of uh, peanut butter and jelly. You can use Ansible and Nix together, but Nix goes even further than Ansible can. It's so great. Very exciting. This week's Bitcoin Optech newsletter 265 has some news about a Lightning Dev mailing list conversation about fraud proofs. The concept is that you could have a service that could be penalized if it ever provides a user with a old channel backup state. And I'm not sure I quite understand the logic. I think that this is a acknowledgement to the reality that Lightning is likely to be a network run by businesses that provide a service to customers. Yes, yes. I don't think it's a bad thing either um, because that's what's happened with email. And we still use email pretty successfully. It's not ideal, but it works. And you could still run your own email server. Again, it's tricky, but you can. But it happened in two years with Lightning. You know, it happened in 20 years with yeah, that's email. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think, it. you know, when you're dealing with money, it matters a lot more. And I think that there's that element of it. Um, although I'm a very small node in the overall Lightning pond. And, um, you know, it took me, it took me nine months. Honestly, if, I, if I'm being honest, it's kind of embarrassing. It took me so long, but system runs really smooth now. What I realized, the key 
to using Lightning Successful if you have a node is peer or open a channel with the people that you need to. So like in my case, Albi, Fountain, Podverse, right? Like it just made sense. And when I started building out my channel connections from that perspective, I have it's really ran really smooth since then. Okay, so that simple advice I have not taken yet and that will probably change the game for me. What I'm currently doing is I'm in the middle of migrating my node into the cloud, so... I have better uptime. And so I'm currently cooking a one core Linode with a Bitcoin node sync. I really should have tried using the Floresta U3XO. That would be cool. But I just don't know if it can be a backend to LND or core lightning. So that's not super clear from their documentation, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to build a node today too, I'd be really tempted to use core lightning, but I feel like I'd, I I also feel like I'd have to do a lot of research there. But I mean, I just want to try something really janky, maybe boost it and tell <laughs> me if I'm going to do something terrible, but like, would it be terrible if I just built the node out uh-huh. and then copied over the LND configs? Can no. I just do that? I mean, yeah, I can do yeah, that, right? Can, yeah, you can do that. Where I debate. I know inevitably I'm going to rebuild my node into a custom system that is an MVP. It's purpose-built just for the things I need with just the applications I need and the services. But what I haven't figured out is if that lives in a VM here in a little mini data center I have across three servers at the studio, or if it lives in the cloud. And there's a lot of advantages to the cloud, especially when you're getting a lot of public traffic over IP instead of Tor. Like I would love to be able to have my node on the clearnet, but I'm not going to do that when it's on my LAN. But you don't ever, like the Lightning Network doesn't really consider you a top tier node unless you're on the public clearnet. Well, because there's more latency. Yeah, and failure rates. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes Tor just fails and then the payment doesn't go through and that stinks. So I, I see a lot of advantages to the cloud, but then I worry about a scenario 10 years out where Bitcoin's worth a lot of money. Then all of a sudden there's a lot of incentive to go after systems that are living on cloud infrastructure. And yeah, I might own the keys, but I don't own the hardware, you know? So then it's like, well, maybe I really should do something locally. For your cloud provider, they have root access to your VM. Sure. Because it's just running in an OpenStack cluster or a... It's third-party risk and there's several different levels, Yeah, but there is such functionality. Maybe the solution is you run in the cloud with whatever capacity you need for channels and for whatever your node to be peered with, and then you just sweep the rest to cold storage as frequently as possible. I know that Blockstream has a product called Greenlight, Mm -hmm. which is some kind of cloud Bitcoin node where you hold the keys locally. So the green light communicates with your kind of local signing device to do channel updates. So that means that there's not really an incentive to compromise your green light instance because it doesn't have keys that control Bitcoin. That's on your LAN or wherever. Right. Somewhere else. Obviously, you could probably do a much more sophisticated exploit where you convince the local keys to sign a transaction that, you know, allows you to take the funds. But I mean, that's another step or probably a big one. It'd be nice if my wallet on my node was a multi-sig of some kind, uh, you know, where if, I don't know exactly how this would work now that I'm thinking about it, because you need to be able to spend that money for the lightning. Yeah, you need constant mm-hmm. channel updates. It has mm-hmm. to be hot. Yeah. Yeah, that's the issue. Well, there have been experiments with creating kind of like hot but air-gapped wallets. I remember there was a project, I feel like it was the people behind uh, Mercury Wallet, which is a Bitcoin space chain side chain, which is kind of interesting. And there was this like Raspberry Pi signing device where they had like a screen, two Raspberry Pis next to each other, and one had an LED screen and it was making QR codes and the other one had a camera and it was like scanning the QR codes and somehow they were air-gapped transmitting data data and each node had like a spending policy. Well, why not just have it one system? Well, the thing is, you know, one is connected to the internet, one is not. 
the one that's not connected to the internet has like a spending policy. And so if it sees a transaction that's like, oh, wait, you want to drain my whole wallet? Pass. I'm not signing that. You know, so this provides some kind of protection there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I do agree, though, with your overall premise that long term, I think for Lightning liquidity to function the way it does, you're going to see, well, we already see it. We see it now with apps like Phoenix and we see it with the Mutiny wallet. They're really relying on back end liquidity providers or channels to get spun up on the back end. And then they're delivering the results to the client machine. And when you think of performance restrictions and battery life and bandwidth restrictions on mobile devices and how so many of these transactions are now done via mobile devices. Yeah, I I really just, even if it wasn't for the protocol limitations and the scaling issues, I I still think we would have inevitably ended up with enterprise hosted lightning solutions just because we want something that's super fast and responsive and lightweight on the end user. And to do that, you generally have to put the compute resource onus on the back end. There are also a large number of software updates in this this week's Optech, including Sparrow 1.7.8, which includes enhanced support for replace by fee and child pays for parent fee bumping transaction features. All I have to say for Sparrow is it's great. Would love to have lightning. <laughs> I don't mean to say that too much, but you know, if you're participating in Noster and Stacker News and you've got Albi and you're sending boost to podcasts, you end up with sats on, on lightning and you want to get them on chain. And you want to put them on cold storage eventually. And there's just not a lot of great desktop wallet apps that offer that. And so you inevitably string multiple services together like Bolts or... The Blink wallet. Yep, yep. Or Moon even, unfortunately. Um, And it just would be so amazing if Sparrow could do something similar to how Mutiny is working with Voltage to kind of use their liquidity provider that spins up on demand to make lightning happen just transparently for the end user. It isn't 100% private, but you know, you're just kind of mixed in with everybody at Voltage. Sparrow is just a great on-chain wallet though. And it's a fantastic way to work with a, a cold wallet, like cold card or anything else really. So it'd be fantastic if you had access to the full Bitcoin network with Sparrow. And it's definitely a challenge to support lightning features because lightning is so different than on-chain bitcoin and actually one of the og desktop bitcoin wallets that does support lightning is electrum and i was just listening today to a discussion on how electrum has their own lightning implementation in python which you know to me suggests oh that uh i don't know you know what's what's in there i know they have a, a security alert up so if you're running Lightning on Electrum, you should update as soon as possible. They're going to release the vulnerability announcement in a few weeks. Mm, Little PSA right there on the pod. Well, if you want to send a PSA in or maybe just want to get in touch, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com. Or you can try it on Twitter at BitcoinDadPod. Or maybe join the Matrix. We'll have links in the show notes. We've got the Bitcoin channel in there where we're going all week long. Welcome your uh, participation, your questions, all of that. In fact, we have a room just for questions, too. We'll have links in the notes or go to JupiterBroadcasting.com slash Matrix for the links. And we have a baller boost this week from Hal Was Right, who sent in 21,000 sats with the message, support boost rocket ship. Can't argue with that. Hal was right. He was right. And that was a support boost. So you were right, too. Thank (laughs) Thank you you. so much. Thank you, Hal. Thanks for being our baller. Thought Criminal comes in with 20,202 sats using Fountain and says, I thought I'd throw some wheels on there and just be the first to boost a duck roll. Yeah, I see. That's what the zeros are. It's a duck roll. Always figured if times got hard, I'd just sell a kidney, but the dysfunctional government and Russian sanctions flooded the market. Looks like (laughs) none of my assets are holding their value these days. Steady, boys. (laughs) 
somebody somewhere will deploy some capital. Suppose I should just care less about the regular meals and think more about huddling. Thank you so much for the boost, Thought Criminal. <laughs> I think you should focus on the regular meals, frankly. I think that's... Yeah. You, know, you got to take care of you yourself. You got to stay alive to make it to when Bitcoin's worth something. X number, whatever your moon right. is. Whatever your moon is, you got to make it and stay alive. Right. The future is always farther away than we think it is. So focus on the present too. Yeah. Thanks so much for the boost. DJ Boosin, Lucky Sevens, that's 7,777 sats, testing Albi via Podverse. Hey, that's how I use it too. Hopefully more boosts will follow. I echo the recent laments of dad and others who want to boost but lack the time to get around to it, even more than lacking sats or tech. Still, sats are hard to get, and as they are good money, I'm also living the effects of Gresham's Law, finding it hard to part with BTC <laughs> over dirty fiat. Maybe I'll end up sending dollars as value for value instead i understand that does make sense gresham's <laughs> law bad money drives out good you want to sell your bad money first yeah. and hoard that good money right the way i look at it is i got my stack in sats and i'm really serious about where i source those from i'm really serious about how i store those um and that's what i consider my stash and then i have my spending sats which I either get through like somebody boosting or I buy like a handful of sats for something and I spend those almost immediately too. So I don't have to worry about <laughs> all of the tax implications of buying them at like, you know, one price and selling them at a much different price. I pretty much have a checking account, which is Albi or whatever that I'll go through and spend those pretty quick for boosting. And I don't look at those as investment sats because I take them in and I take them out pretty much around the same time. BTC Realist comes in with 11,111 sats using Fountain. It says, thanks for your value. Well, thank you. Thanks for the long row of sticks. Faraday Fedora boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats with the simple message, boost. Boost. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate just sending in the, the value and a quick message just to make sure we get the support. Bob B came in with 6,000 sats. Oh, Bob. He says his oak broke because I only had one channel open on my lightning node and that got closed by an automated cleanup script, which I think was on my node. He had one channel is open to my node, oh. <laughs> uh, which enforced a minimum uh, sats size on the channel. I'm sending a boost by hand for the missed ones until I get some time to sort out my channel again. Can I open one to you? Yeah. So Bob and I talked a little bit this, about this on Matrix and economically speaking, from time to time, you're going to want to loop in or loop out of a channel. And you know, you move sats from one end of the channel to the other end of the channel when you do this. And the way we have the JB node optimized is on the receiving side of the channel. So I'm not really sending sats out from the node. We're receiving sats. So I optimize for receiving sats. The issue is if a channel is smaller than 250,000 sats, it's not really worth the cost of looping. And in the automated world, you can't even loop a channel under 250 sats, 250,000 sats. It won't let you. And how much is 250,000 sats in dollars right now? Not a lot. Not, I mean, because well, a million sats is like, $260, right? No, no, a million sats is closer to like 500 bucks, I think, right now. But when you're talking channel liquidity, like a small channel by some providers is considered a million sats. So 250,000 sats is like a micro channel. And so they won't even let you reloop out of those. So really what you want is you want a channel that's large enough to meet your needs and then maybe a little bit extra if it gets used by the network for routing, which is a good thing because you might get some routing fees. So Bob, I would aim for like 500,000 sats. I know that seems like a lot, but you get those back when you close the channel. So you're not, you're not giving them away. And you kind of, I look at it as because you can earn some routing fees, those you're kind of putting those sats to work when you open that channel. It just basically needs to be like 300,000 sats or larger for a lot of those automated scripts not to close them. What will happen is 
if you get a bunch of sats stuck on the wrong side of the channel, so like in my case, if they're all stuck on the send side, you might start getting payment failures because they'll try a channel. And if it, you know, maybe they just couldn't find another channel in the, in the allowed time, the payment will fail and the boost fails to go through. Even though I may still have something, you know, like millions of sats of inbound liquidity, the, the network happened to pick your channel. And because the capacity was all screwed up, the boost fails. So that's why they end up getting closed. And 250 sats is $65 at the moment. So yeah. it's, it's not huge. It's not right. hundreds, but yeah. And I think you want to go up. So 300,000 or above. I like to, I say I'm recommending these days 500,000 because that gives you time to use it before all the sats end up on one side. And it also gives you capacity in case the network opts to use it and you earn a little routing fee. And you also experience some of the limitations of the lightning protocol because it is channel constrained, liquidity constrained. You have to care about liquidity on both sides. And I think that means that there is a limit to the transaction throughput scaling yeah. of lightning. But I mean, the flip side is those stats are there. They're accounted for, right? If that if they're in that channel capacity, that's one of the ways the lightning, that's why the lightning transactions can be instant, right? Is that because that liquidity is there. It's in the channel. It's essentially locked in. But Bob, we appreciate the support, even if you can't do it automatically. And for hand coding a boost, it came in perfectly. You even got the hashes right. Good job. <laughs> Thank you so much. The golden dragon boosts in a row of fours, 4,444 sats over two boosts. Is dad going to be at Linux LFNW? Is that Linux Fest Northwest? You got it. Yes, I am going to be there. I am really looking forward to it. I think that's going to be my first Linux conference. It's a good one. We're going to have a, we'll have a hotel room uh, deal for you that you can get into if you want to. Although you might be able to drive it, but I wouldn't. We're going to be cooking on Saturday. And how many sweaty sysadmins am I sharing this room with? Well, no, just yourself, oh, unless you want to. I mean, okay. it's up to you. It's your No, the more the better. <laughs> uh, but you can get all this, the sweaty sysadmins you want. I count for two. <laughs> all of them will be there Saturday while we're grilling up lunch. It's going to be a great Linux fest. Oh, boy. Golden Dragon's going to be there. So. Yes. I cannot wait mm -hmm. to meet the Golden Dragon. <laughs> He follows up with, I often wonder why we continue to bail out proven failed anything. Oh, I can't read that. I think it was a drunk boost. Well, we all boost drunk. Let's be honest. <laughs> I often wonder why we continue to bail out, even though it's, I think proven, he's saying proven to fail and yeah. it never fixes anything. Every dollar printed is another degree lower. The dollar goes. Well, I think the issue is who benefits first from those bailout dollars? Those bailout dollars generally don't go to people without large amounts of political representation. Mm. and Every dollar printed is a degree lower the dollar goes. It takes time for the dollar to go lower. It takes time for inflation to propagate through the economy. Yeah, so if, you're, if you get the dollar soon, you get to snap stuff up. Right. So if you're sitting underneath the uh, money spigot, you want as much money to flow through it as possible. Inflation is someone else's problem at that point. Hate it. Adversary 17 comes in with 4,096 sats using pod first. Hey, Dad and Chris, great. Last few episodes, I haven't boosted due to many life things going on lately, but I'm still listening to the show every week. Stay humble and stack sats. Thank you for checking in. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, I hope those life things go well for you. Isn't this our favorite Dutch central banking dig economist, A. De Vries, again? I, I mean, I call them adversaries, but... Uh, okay. <laughs> OP1984 boosts in 2,000 sats with the message support boost. Is this the OP? Yeah. This is the OP. Uh-huh. Yeah. The one wow. we're always talking about? Wow. Mm-hmm. Gosh. Thank you for the support boost. Open Source Accountant comes in with 2,500 sats. You guys may want to check out the podcast Crypto with Accountants. This seems to be the most common message being spread by the AICPA to accountants and business owners. Already added 
Thank you so much, Open Source Accountant. I hope you really enjoy their episode where they talk about NFT investments. (laughs) I haven't gotten to that one yet, but really looking forward to it. (laughs) Those Jupiter Broadcasting monkey JPEGs, that's the future. (laughs) Gonna moon any day. Craftnix boosts in a row of ducks. I've been using Phoenix Wallet, not as a main Lightning Wallet, for years. It is probably the easiest wallet to onboard and that is not custodial. However, there are some privacy considerations. It works via automatically opening a channel between your phone wallet and Async, the company that creates PW. What's PW? Phoenix Wallet. Phoenix Wallet. So all transactions to from your wallet go through them. Other than that, this is a fantastic mobile wallet. And there's a great link in there to Async and Phoenix Wallet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just in August did a massive update. So it's getting better and better. He, he does raise a good point, though, about how when they're managing that lightning stuff for you on the back end, which is sweet, right? They're opening it up to their server. And in their FAQ, they say it could be likely that they could put together who's sending what to who. Uh, and that is a concern with Phoenix. But at the bottom of their most recent blog post, where they have a section called What's Next, they say one of the next features they're bringing to Phoenix is called Blinded Paths, uh, which is a payment path in Lightning where the public keys of the nodes are hidden. And so uh, that would, in theory, address the privacy concerns. Phoenix and iOS are not current. The two versions, the two apps, they're not compatible. So if you have an Android wallet and you try to open it up on an iOS device, even though they're both the Phoenix app made by the same people, they are not compatible at the moment. You need to wait till the iOS version gets up to date because they're rolling out new features. I think one of the biggest ones is they've added splicing. So Phoenix now manages a single dynamic channel. So you don't have the 1% fee on all inbound liquidity and you get an idea of what it's going to cost. They have implemented trustless swaps and you can have a single balance in the app now instead of a lightning balance and an on-chain balance. So the app just goes from strength to strength. And when they get blinded paths improved and implemented, I I think there's going to be no reservation recommending Phoenix at all. Well, that sounds like a great way to get started with lightning quickly. Honestly, I wish I had done that. I waited to set up my own lightning node and and then I got started Mm -hmm. months to a year later. Right. Yeah, it was a big learning curve. Halleck came in with 10,000 sats using Fountain. Boost! I really appreciate the no-ad stance. I really hope we can build up the value-for-value support. Well, Halleck, with folks like you, we can. Thank you very much for 10,000 sats. And technically, we do have the Jupiter Broadcasting ad, so we are limited in our ability to criticize Chris's podcasting empire. It's the only way I can keep the criticisms at bay is if I just have that financial influence over the Bitcoin Dad pod. Right. It's, it's part of a big strategy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't mess with the Linux godfather. No. <laughs> Not as long as I got that big financial stake. Right. <laughs> <laughs> True Grits boosted in 5,000 sats. Yep, it's me again. Hey-o. I got really behind this summer, still catching up. I've been trying to catch up on my non-lightning podcast first to stack those sats so I can boost and stream them back. <laughs> oh, I see. So he's using Fountain, right? And Fountain has the earn sats function. You earn regardless of the podcast you're listening to. And then, so he's he's listening to the ones that don't use Lightning. So that way, when he switches to the ones that do, he has some sats. Grits, it's just good to hear from you. Uh, I like your strategy there. That's a whole strategy you've worked out. McIntosh comes in with 2,121 sats using Fountain. It says, probably a little late, but I think the drive chains should not be integrated. I'm a pleb miner. I do have some quote skin in the game. I've also been involved with Bitcoin since 2014, and I really feel like I have seen this dog and pony show before. 
Bitcoin's going to die if you don't do this. Yeah, whatever. Bitcoin doesn't need it. Fork off. Just my two sats. Well, thanks for the feedback. I mean, I think this is a great perspective because early Bitcoiners have different views and incentives than later Bitcoiners. Who represents the billion Bitcoiners that have not sent their first transaction yet? That's a good question. And from a certain point of view, they don't exist and Bitcoin can remain as it is for the people who use it today. Or maybe there is some middle ground where features are added that enable more people to onboard and more people to uh, use it or make it useful for them. So I don't know what the right combination of stasis versus change is, but um, likely something will change, I think. There will be a layer three. There will be. We just don't. I mean, I I, I agree that um, we don't basically need to reproduce altcoins on top of Bitcoin. <laughs> what I want is something that enables scaling, something that enables privacy. You know, if something came along that something kind of like ARC that came along and got popular that could give us some coin join like functionality, something that was compatible with the Lightning Network as well. So it wasn't just an alternative, but it interoperated with the Lightning Network, which isn't going away. That's a drive chain I could get behind. I, mean, I wouldn't be in it for the NFTs and the smart contracts and all that kind of stuff, but I could be in it for low fees, coin joins, Lightning compatibility. There's some, there are some advantages there. I just want to see the right one. Yeah, I definitely agree. As you were talking, I was nodding along and saying, I think that drive chains, at least on paper, are supposed to provide what you're looking for. That said, I think the real debate around upgrades to Bitcoin starts when there is a BIP that's fully tested and ready to go. So maybe Paul Storks and his drive chain advocates need to write their user activated software client and put it out there. And they do it well. And there's testing and there's a there is a drive chain test net. So we can mess around with that and decide if we want to run the, the soft fork, then we can just soft fork. Well, the whole point of this podcast was to get behind a soft fork or oppose it in the future. And after you do that, half the community hates you, so you have to stop. So <laughs> you know, that might be the opportunity. <laughs> Thank you, everybody who boosted. We had 17 boosters, 18 total boosts. We had a couple under the cutoff, but 101, 895 sats total this week. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We'd love to see those numbers go up, too, as the show continues on and we begin to round the corner, getting to episode 100. It could be a great time to jump on and start supporting the show. If you'd like to keep your podcast app, the quickest way to support the show via Boost is to get Albie. GetAlby.com. You got a couple of different ways to top it off now directly in the app or get something like RoboSats or Cash App or something that's on the Lightning Network and just get them onto Albie and head on over to the podcast index, podcastindex.org. You look up the Bitcoin Dad Pod, boom, you'll see there's a form right there. You can boost from the web. You can boost from the web. But if you're ready to enjoy the podcasting 2.0 revolution, go to newpodcastapps.com, Fountain, Podverse, Castomatic. I think those are like the top contenders in our audience. They bring a whole boatload of new features. They're trying to break the duopoly on the podcasting directory system, and they're trying to give more control back to listeners and content creators. Newpodcastapps.com, and then you can boost in directly with the podcast app. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on August 25th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here in person with me. It's Chris. I'm looking forward to seeing everybody at Linux Festival.